2: We are the Badass Women's Hour and this month we've chosen Vox to feature on our book club. This month's book feels incredibly timely. It's set a few years in the future and in Vox, the book, it imagines an America that has returned to traditional or pure values. Men are in charge as women are forced out of the workplace and into the home and to make sure there is no dissension, every woman and girl must wear a counter, a bracelet that tracks how many words she says each day. More than 100 and she receives a vicious electric shock. In the studio to discuss the book with us, we're lucky enough to have the author, Christina Dulce. Welcome, Christina.
3: Woo! Thank you.
2: Thank you, Harriet. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Emma.
4: I'm
5: just absolutely pleased as punched to be here.
2: Oh, we're very excited to be able to chat about it with you because I have so many questions.
5: Well, as Harriet said, uh, men are in charge. My brain did an automatic... Boo, <laughs> which is basically how I felt reading a, a lot of the book every time they open their mouth. So.
2: It is a really... The thing that really scared me about the book as I was reading it, and I was saying to our producer earlier, occasionally there were moments where I had to put it down and go and take a little walk and be like, "Okay, and I'll come back. I
4: Um, had to do that when I was writing it. I
2: can imagine. (laughs) It felt so possible. Was it, what inspired you to write this book right now? Was the one thing happening in the world that you were like, I've got to say this?
4: The one thing. Wow that's a hard one. No, actually, it's not a hard one. So I've said before that I am a rather fervent proponent of equality, egalitarianism, free speech. And I also have this fear of too much governmental control, too much intervention by the big state, suppression of individual rights and liberties. So I wanted to imagine a world where, in fact, that happened. that's sort of the essence of dystopia right i love dystopia it scares the hell out of me but i can't i'm addicted to it i can't get enough of it so that's really what that's i mean that's the broad stroke thing that i wanted to say is let's all not take our situations for granted
5: the thing you also pull through in the book are uh, small realities of today that we take for granted the restriction to 100 words. We're almost doing that ourselves through social media. A post is never more than a than hundred words. Twitter, short characters. We're losing our ability to communicate and um, explore language because we're trying to fit into into a condensed world. And so reading through, I was like, all of this is is, is normal. It, you're just condensing it into um, an extreme situation, yeah, right. which is fascinating. And,
4: and Natalie, um, thank you for, Mitch, for bringing up the language. I, I do think you're right. In fact, I heard in Italy uh, a few times that there has there have been some studies about the particularly younger generations really not using as rich a language, not using as many lexical items, not not as many vocabulary words mm. as people have in the past, and that this, in fact, could possibly be attributable to social media to texting, to any kind of medium in which we're constrained to limit our characters or our words, right? The substitution of emoticons and emojis for emotions. Does anyone, I mean, do we, do we still say flabbergasted? Can you imagine, uh, you know, maybe 10 years in the future where, where we don't say, I feel wiped out or knackered or... Um, you know, I, I want to go into the arms of Morpheus. I'm so tired. I mean, what a lovely, <laughs> lovely saying that is. But if we replace all of these things with a sleepy-eyed, you know, yellow face, or mm-hmm. uh, then, then um, you know, do we lose something? And in fact, I did write Vox as... Um, I wanted to get across this message of not taking our rights for granted, our voice for granted. Mm. But that voice kind of is a, is a double entendre, in, in one sense, there's the literal voice, the actual ability that we have to use and manipulate language that no other animal species has. I mean, it's, it's effectively the thing that makes us human. Mm. And then also there's that metaphoric voice, the voice that we use to cry out when we see something unjust, to talk back when we disagree, to vote, to engage in civilized debate, and all these things. So there's a parallel. I think I think we take both of these for granted sometimes, and and we shouldn't.
2: Christina, we've talked a lot about the restriction of language on the book, but what I found really interesting were some of the male characters in the book, especially the husband and also the son. Can you tell us a bit more about the other points you were trying to make through these characters?
4: Sure. Ah, uh, and once again, you know, a, a novel is an organic, living, breathing. Monster or Leviathan, uh, since we're trying to use our words today. Some of this really happened as I was writing, and I think that with respect to the male characters. So here's my meta thought for you: No, no one of us is a single thing, right? I, I, with okay, there are exceptions, but with very with with very few exceptions. Neither one of us is all bad or all good. We're very complex characters, complex personalities. So I wanted to show with Jean's husband, with Patrick, that, you know, I mean, he's he's, he's, he's sort of a hero, but he's not really. He certainly doesn't look like a hero at first. He looks quite passive, but, but not in really in an evil way. I think I've heard a lot of women from a lot of women who've read Vox who said, oh, God, I just want to punch a man. <laughs> but in fact, not all these men are bad. Some of them are under pressure. I mean, we do we do things. We react in certain ways. When, and we don't really know how we'll react until we're thrust into a situation. So when you've got realities like a mortgage for children to raise and feed and take care of, provide for, when you've got a job that is, tied into this political system that you hate, but you don't feel like you have a choice, it's very difficult to know what we would do in that position. Would we be a Patrick? Would we just do it and sell out? Or would we would we resist? I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think that we'd resist. But then again, life gets in the way. Uh, uh, there's another male character that I'd like to touch on, and that's Jean's oldest son, Stephen. Yeah. Stephen is another another male character who looks really evil, <laughs> particularly in certain scenes. And I've heard again from readers that oh my god, these scenes between he him and his mother, they just they just want to take that kid by the throat and shake some sense and civility into him.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Because you see, he embraces this pure movement. He buys into it, he thinks it's good.
5: Because it makes him powerful. Well, he's been brought up with it, though, hasn't he? So he, he doesn't really know any different. Well, I mean, this is very recent,
4: right? This has only been going on for a year or so. Although we can guess that we probably saw signs of it before, some conditioning before. I don't... I think that power, Natalie, is certainly one of his motivations. But that didn't occur to me as much when I was writing him as a few other things. He's a teenager. He's 16, 17 years old. What does he know about the world? Mm. And I don't want to say that 16 and 17 year olds don't know enough about the world, but they don't know as much about the world. It's it's simply not possible uh, to pack that much world experience into really what amounts to nine years beyond the age of reason, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> also. Teenagers like Stephen are, God, I mean, there's so many distractions, so many pressures. Think back to when you were 16. Um, would, would, how many people would go back there? No way. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> the answer I always get. I always get. I mean, you've got, where am I going to go to uni? Oh, my God, I'm going to leave my parents' house one day. That's a brand new kind of a thing. You've got sex, you've got raging hormones, you've got peer pressure, you've got loads and loads and loads of homework to do. I mean, all of these things, I think, just, and and also, you know, our brains are still a little bit in flux at that point. There's a lot going on. it's not surprising that teenagers would be victims, very susceptible candidates for brainwashing.
5: See, Christine, Christina, mm. I'm going to challenge you on a character you wrote. That's all right. Because, you <laughs> <That's all> right. <laughs> yeah, might as well. Yeah. Uh, so I hear everything you're saying, but I also think as much as he was a teenager, uh, he realised there was a system that fundamentally benefited him. He was not losing out in any way. And even though he saw his mother and his sister suffering, there wasn't, a sixteen and seventeen year old can be empathetic, and there's a point of realization where you go, "My mum is unhappy. My sister has no life in her, or she is not engaging as much in the world as me." And so he didn't resist on that basis because he was fundamentally enjoying a world that was create that was being created to enable him to thrive. And I don't, uh, I didn't want to shake him for it because I think we would all do that if the world was set up to enable us to thrive mm-hmm. you'd start to embrace it in ways that you you, you just would you'd get on with it basically you're
2: maybe not even aware that you're doing it yeah,
5: yeah exactly and and that's almost what i saw in his character so there were moments of wanting to punch him and there moments of saying actually if the world was created for me um to to live my best life i would start to engage and I would possibly turn a blind eye to things I should I should uh, resist against
2: but that's a lot of the themes that you had in the book Christina which were like the extremes of what is actually happening now Mm. right people are enjoying their privilege right now and they're not necessarily motivated to create change or help others so for me Stephen is an extreme of modern stuff that's going on right
4: now right right I can definitely see that and and you know certainly some of this was in my subconscious some of this was mm. in my the, my forebrain when I was writing <clears throat> pardon me um so I agree that he, he 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 certainly was aware that women were getting shocked if they went over 100 words I think we we might have had a different kind of a feeling or more insight into Stephen if I hadn't written Vox in first person from Jean's perspective. Mm. Right? By doing that, um, you know, you're know you really only getting these bits of the other characters via conversation and via Jean's memories and via Jean's perspective. So this is actually very interesting and if I were to go further with this book, which I'm not committing to right now, <laughs> I'm not committing, but if I were, I would really want to focus on Stephen quite a bit more. There's one more thing that I want to say though because I think it really is a complicated cocktail. Mm. There's a sense in which some of these people, some of these pure movement people are deluded. Mm. I mean, they really do think that the world is going to be better not just for them. This is equivalent to a friend of mine, an old, old friend of mine I've known her since I was about six or seven who said i love little house on the prairie you know the laura Ingalls wilder Mm -hmm. stories. i would love to go back to that simpler life and i go no honey you wouldn't (laughs) you you, really you want to january in northern pennsylvania you want to go outside to go to the loo i don't think so (laughs) you want to not take a bath Uh for a week at a time i don't think so so but it's delusional right we romanticize Mm -hmm. this past and I think there's a part of Stephen and a part of everybody in this pure movement, not everybody, some of them, mm. who are buying into this fantasy that things were better when they were
2: simpler. So Christina, when um, when I finished <clears throat> reading the book, I was left with um, really something that came right up at the very, very beginning, which was Jean not going to a political rally because she thought it wasn't necessary. She thought, oh, we've got it all solved. I don't need to add my voice to this. And it really struck me, because I've definitely had moments where I've gone, oh, we've got it all solved. I don't need to add my voice to this. I am absolutely taking that away from this book about using my voice at all times. I wondered what the message was that you would want readers to take away from this book.
4: Well, I think you got the message loud and clear, Harriet. <laughs> uh, there, I, 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 I don't think I could have said it better myself. When, uh, we've I, I believe we've probably all been in this position. I mean, it's just a conjecture of mine, but things do get in the way. And I haven't lived in, in the UK for a while or voted in the UK for a while, so I, I honestly don't remember the local level elections and versus the larger scale, you know, more uh, you know, national elections. But I do know what it's like in the States. So I looked at some statistics and, and found out that for presidential elections in the U.S., the, of all eligible voters, there's about a 60 or 65 percent turnout. Mm-hmm. I've heard from the Germans that it's about the same in Germany. So think about this. This means one out of every three people stays home. These are for presidential elections. Midterms, much lower. Uh, you know, gubernatorial elections, much lower. Local elections in my city, I live in the other Norfolk, <laughs> the new Norfolk, um,
3: 10%,
4: wow. 13% for a city council position. That means one out of every nine people, more or less, is staying at home. So, wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> I I don't even know. I'm sort of speechless when mm-hmm. I when I say this, and I don't want to sound polemic. I don't want to sound like I'm lecturing anyone. I, once again, the right to vote is a right to vote. It does not mean that I have the right to force you into the polling booth. But. Uh, but we do need to think about this. So if, if people take that away from Vox, if they just think about it, uh, think about going out and standing up for what they believe in. And this is really important, again, because I have to, you know, give everybody a voice, not just the people that I want to hear. What's Orwell's quote? Freedom is the ability to tell people what they don't want to hear. Mm. That's a tough pill to swallow. But I didn't say it. Orwell did. And we all like Orwell. I mean, there's a statue of him here in London. Um, so I think this is really important that whatever you believe in, whatever your convictions are, you let's, let's all do what we have to do to make our voices heard. And then we'll hope that reason will prevail. Mm-hmm.
2: And finally, I wanted to ask you, uh, the book is allows women 100 words a day and when i read that i did a little experiment where i tried to keep account of the point in the day when i got to 100 words and i live alone with only my dog to talk to and i was there by about ten thirty in the morning <laughs> um 100 words is very very few if you only had 100 words that you could say a day what would you use them
4: <coughs> on well you're right um 100 words is <clears throat> effectively nothing it's uh I keep using this analogy. It's like finding this man who's or woman who's just walked across the Sahara Desert and offering a drop of water. Here you go. Have fun with this. You know, enjoy, quench your thirst. Um, what would I do with my? I think you can guess. I think it, it would be a hundred repetitions of the same word. Right. Start with F end with U-C-K, and with U C K. U C K. I'm right there it, with
6: you, Christina. And it would
4: not be fire truck. It would not be fire truck.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: One, two, three, four! One. If anyone told me I could bring down the president, and the pure movement, and that incompetent little shit Morgan LeBron in a week's time, I wouldn't believe them. But I wouldn't argue. I wouldn't say a thing. I become a woman of few words. Tonight at supper, before I speak my final syllables of the day, Patrick reaches over and taps a silver-toned device around my left wrist. It's a light touch, as if he were sharing the pain, or perhaps reminding me to stay quiet until the counter resets itself at midnight. This magic will happen while I sleep, and I'll begin Tuesday with a virgin slate. My daughter Sonia's counter will do the same. My boys do not wear word counters. Over dinner, they are all engaged in the usual chatter about school. Sonia also attends school, although she never wastes words discussing her days. At supper, between bites of a simple stew, I made from memory. Patrick questions her about her progress in home economics, physical fitness, and a new course titled Simple Accounting for Households. Is she obeying the teachers? Will she earn high marks this term? He knows exactly the type of questions to ask. Close-ended, requiring only a nod or a shake of the head. I watch and listen, my nails carving half-moons into the flesh of my palms. Sonia nods when appropriate, wrinkles her nose when my young twins, not understanding the importance of yes-no interrogatives and finite answer sets, Ask their sister to tell them what the teachers are like, how the classes are, which subjects she likes best. So many open-ended questions. I refuse to think they do understand, that they're baiting her, teasing out words. But at eleven, they're old enough to know, and they've seen what happens when we overuse words. Sonia's lips quiver as she looks from one brother to another the pink of her tongue trembling on the edge of her teeth or the plump of her lower lip, a body part with a mind of its own, undulating. Stephen, my eldest, extends a hand and touches his forefinger to her mouth. I could tell them what they want to know. All men at the front of the classrooms now. One-way system. Teachers talk, students listen. It would cost me sixteen words. I have five left. How is her vocabulary? Patrick asks, knocking his chin my way. He rephrases. Is she learning? I shrug. By six, Sonia should have an army of ten thousand lexemes, individual troops, that assemble and come to attention and obey the orders her small, still-plastic brain issues. Should have, if the three R's weren't now reduced to one simple arithmetic. After all, one day my daughter will be expected to shop and run a household, to be a devoted and dutiful wife. You need math for that, but not spelling, not literature, not a voice. You're the cognitive linguist, Patrick says, gathering empty plates, urging Stephen to do the same. Was. Are. In spite of my year of practice, the extra words leak out before I can stop them. No, I'm not. Patrick watches the counter tick off another three entries. I feel the pressure of each on my pulse, like an ominous drum. That's enough, Jean, he says. The boys exchange worried looks, the kind of worry that comes from knowing what occurs if the counter surpasses those three digits. One, zero, zero. This is when I say my last Monday word to my daughter. The whispered goodnight has barely escaped when Patrick's eyes meet mine, pleading. I scoop her up and carry her off to bed. She's heavier now, almost too much girl to be hoisted up, and I need both arms. Sonia smiles at me when I tuck her under the sheets. As usual... There's no bedtime story, no exploring Dora, no Pooh and Piglet, no Peter Rabbit and his misadventures in Mr. McGregor's lettuce patch. It's frightening what she's grown to accept as normal. I hum her to sleep with a song about mockingbirds and billy goats, the verses still and quiet pictures in my mind's eye. Patrick watches from the door, his shoulders once broad and strong, Slump in a downward facing V. His forehead is creased in matching lines. Everything about him seems to be pointing down. Badass Women's
2: Hour XL on Talk Radio.
1: She'll get you talking.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.